Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Last month, we had Harold James, the Princeton historian on the show, talking about an article he wrote called Late Soviet America, in which he compared the United States to the late Soviet Union, or at least not the, the late Soviet Union as a, as a, as a dead place, but uh, the, the dying embers of the Soviet Union. Maybe there's another way, though, of thinking about America. Maybe uh, we might like to think of America as post-Soviet Russia. This idea came to mind when I was reading Schoolhouse Burning, a new book by Derek Black about the, the looting of the American education system. Of course, in the, when, the, when the Soviet Union came crumbling down, the public sphere was looted by private enterprise. And a similar kind of thing seems to be going on in America, particularly in the education sphere. Derek, schoolhouse burning, does that remind you uh, this, this, this looting of the, of, the, of the public sphere in education? Does it remind you of what happened after the collapse of the Soviet Union in Russia? Yeah, I mean, it's such a pleasure to, to come on and, and talk with intelligent folks like yourself. That idea had not occurred to me, but as soon as you began describing it, I was like, yeah, there's this this thing that had been kept for for the commons for us all. And, you know, regardless of whether you thought communism worked or not, right, there was at least sort of the ideology there. And and once that ideology came down, everybody wanted a piece of the commons and, and really bending it towards their own agenda. And and you're right um, that there is, a, unfortunately, a, a lot of similarity there. I mean, there's a ton of money to be made on public education. I mean, I don't like to think of it that way because I think of it as a common good, but you know, it is the biggest program uh, by a long stretch that the 50 states run. And you know, it's been a, it's, you know, been a constant sort of drumbeat of some folks in private industry that they wanted to get in on, a, get in on that action and start making money off of it. So this financialization of the education system is very troubling. It's the heart of your book, Schoolhouse Burning. It also raises other areas like prisons and, and, and other spheres of the public sphere which have been destroyed. Derek, your book, Schoolhouse Burning, is, is a really um, troubling and well-researched analysis of the, the crisis of public education in the United States. It's deeply historical. And you argue, and indeed the, the, sub, the subtitle of the book is Public Education and the Assault on American Democracy. You tie public education and American democracy together. You say that they are not only intimate, but essential to one another. Why is public education so critical to American democracy? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's an empirical question, um, and then there's sort of that sort of values question. I think we have to separate those out. I mean, I think the values question is easy, which is to say, you know, America was a radical experiment in democracy, right? We're sort of transitioning from monarch, uh, an elite type of system of government, um, to handing it over to the common people and the elites, the Adams and the Jeffersons and and Madison's of the world said, look, if, if we're going to hand this, this 
country over to common people, to farmers, you know, to laborers, they have got to be educated. And if not, this whole thing could come crumbling down. I mean, they might just decide to steal all of our stuff. I mean, that was a real fear as well, that they wouldn't understand sort of the common good and they would use government to extract. So there was this early idea that if we're going to have a democracy, you have to have a widely educated uh, population. You know, of course, we were far from a democracy at founding and, and, you know, the Civil War exposed a lot of that. And after the Civil War, it was the same thing again. They said, look, we have kept, you know, over a million folks and chains and slaves, both of the mind and body. And if these folks are going to come into, you know, the public sphere, you know, they need, they need to have public education, right? And so the South uh, in particular begins constitutionalizing that idea. And we, you know, things are a little bit different in the modern civil rights movement. I think what the modern civil rights movement in the, in the 50s and 60s said was, look, you took that education piece back during Jim Crow as a means of subjugating African-Americans and denying them citizenship. And we're here in the 50s and 60s and 70s to demand citizenship, citizenship again, and we're starting with public education. So, you know, it, it, it's always been closely tied as our values, but empirically speaking, too, you look at the data, you see who shows up at the polls, you know, folks with graduate degrees show up about 85% of the time, and, and, you know, folks with less than a high school degree show up about 25, 30% of the time. So there's clearly an empirical correlation there as well. I was struck in your book by the importance of education for the, for the freed slaves, for African-Americans. And uh, indeed, in the 20th century during civil rights, the continual central role of education uh, for the African-American community. Is that because, in your mind, uh, public education was a ticket to emancipation? Yeah. You know, I learned a lot. You talk about the freedmen and the slaves. I mean, I learned a lot in researching that. And and you know, if you if you look at court cases and you look at history books, there's always this reference to how um, reading and writing had been criminalized for slaves. Very few people dig beneath the surface to, to fully understand. They they look at that from the whites' perspective and say, "Oh, the whites were afraid of educated blacks," and the story kind of stops there. What my book does is look at the other side and go, "Well, how did the slaves actually think about this?" And that was. That was a, a heart-rendering, in many respects, experience because when we talk about education in lofty terms, and I do it quite frequently, it sounds a little bit like rhetoric, right? It sounds a little bit like stuff that politicians would say. But when you begin reading the diaries of slaves and former slaves, mostly former slaves, and, and missionaries, and you understand that they, in their heart of hearts, believed that if they were going to be free, education was the ticket, as you say. And, and it's just, it, it, it brings the rhetoric of 200 years into individual people's life experience in a way that, unfortunately, you would never appreciate were it not for the experience, or we couldn't fully appreciate were it not from the horrible atrocity of, of, of slavery itself. And Derek, you're obviously not black, but uh, you introduced at the beginning of the book your own personal narrative. You came from a very poor family. You had no natural advantages and you realized yourself and now you're a distinguished writer and a professor at the uh, University of uh, South Carolina uh, because of public education. So it has a, a particular place in your heart. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I mean, I did have, I will say my whiteness, you know, it is an advantage, you know, if, had I been a young African-American child, um, you know, my, my chances would have been lower. I, I can't say that African-American children were, were doing great in my school, uh, you know, in my AP classes in English, you know, I had one African-American student, um, just one throughout my experience in, in high school. Um, you know, the overall Where were you in high school uh, there? Well, I went to Clinton, Tennessee, which has its own history, which I talk about in the book a yeah. little bit. Uh, Clinton uh, High School was the first school in the South to graduate, traditionally white school in the South, to graduate an African-American. Um, and that was one of the first places that Thurgood Marshall actually went after. It was the first place, actually, he went after uh, Brown versus Board of Education because there were literally you know, just about a dozen African-American high school kids on the hill behind the high school a few hundred yards up that desegregation was easy in Clinton. Let them walk off the hill. That's it. That's all you needed to do. Uh, although for decades, instead of walking off the hill, they'd been sending them an hour away to a different county. So, you know, I, I learned that history uh, through real, real black and white footage. And it really had an effect on, on my understanding of, of race in school to a certain extent. But, you know, going back to me, I mean, you know, as I say in the book, my teachers often wanted things for me that I didn't even want for myself. So to give an enormous amount of credit to just people of goodwill trying to take care of kids who, who need help, right, who, who who need a hand up. And I made a lot of mistakes. And I'll have to say that's where my whiteness also comes in. A lot of those mistakes were forgiven me, to be quite honest, so that I had a chance. One of the things I like about your book, Derek, is you don't go on and on about the American dream, which becomes very repetitive, almost childlike. Um, so let's talk about this great crime or the crime that's happening now, this looting of the public sphere in the education space. The, the cast of characters who were responsible for this will be familiar with many of our viewers, the same people who come up time and time again when it comes to the destruction of the public sphere. The Koch brothers, for example, or Betsy DeVos and her family. Is it this, uh, this, this wing of the Republican Party, we might call them as the neoliberal or financialization uh, wing of the Republican Party, that essentially wants to do away with the public sphere in every, every aspect of life? Yeah, I mean, I, it, there's so many names and so many sort of characters, you know, I, I really hesitate to, to name call, but you, you certainly do name the ones that I name. Yeah, they're um, in the book, so there's no secrets. Yeah. yeah, no, I just meant, you know, it's so easy to demonize them because at least from my perspective. Well, but you're, you are demonizing them perhaps for good reason because they're, they're committing this terrible crime. Yeah, you're right. I mean, they, they, they believe that our system of government, uh, you know, the Koch brothers are pretty straightforward about it is set up to allow folks like myself uh, or my family uh, to extract wealth from other folks. And that that's what government does. It says, Derek needs an education, get the Koch brothers to pay for it. You know, Sally needs education, get them to pay for it. And what they're saying is we don't want that. We want, we believe government is here to protect personal property, not take personal property away. And so they, you know, they are going through a, series of sort of policy agendas over the past couple of decades to try to stop sort of taxation, to stop the funding of the common good. And when you step back and say, what is the largest common good in this country? It's really at the state level, it's public education. At the federal level, it, it's health care and social security. That's it, right? Now, 
getting at it at the federal level has been kind of tough, right? Social Security has been around and everybody shares in that. And, and there's a lot of senior voters that aren't having any of that. But at the state level, they've been able to develop this sort of rhetoric and ideology um, that seems like they're reasonable. They, make, they try to make it seem like they're not attacking the common good. They're trying to create freedom, right? That, that's the word that, that Betsy DeVos and the Koch brothers use. When they use freedom, to me, what they really mean is freedom for them, not the rest of us. They mean you know, that, that their wealth base is going to become free if they can get their new agenda in. Do you that, think there's I mean. an element of racism there too? So often in America, when this financialization comes up, whether it's healthcare or education or so many other areas, it's always the minorities, particularly African-Americans who are the victims of them. Do you think that consciously or subconsciously these people want to somehow punish black Americans? I think they are certainly playing on the emotions of other people who want to punish black America. There's part of me, and I, you know, it's dangerous to, to psychoanalyze, I, I feel like they just care about their own money when we're talking about the Cokes and, 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 the, and the DeVosses. They don't want to give it to anybody. Um, but as has always been the case in American history, people at the sort of top of the food chain can use issues of race to get their agenda through. And so I have some, some maps and charts in the book that sort of scale out what is the level of privatization, where does it exist, where does it not exist. And, and the scary thing about that for me is that when you look at predominantly white monolithic states, there's almost no privatization at all. But when you look at the Southeast and the Southwest, where we've got far more diversity, and even some of our urban centers elsewhere, privatization is running off the charts. Why is that? I think in part it is tapping into that fear that, you know, we're going to take your tax dollars, you being you white folks, tax dollars and spend it on public schools for African-American kids. Let's just get out of this mess, right? Let, let's do something different. I have to admit, um, Derek, when there's debate about education, high school education, uh, K through 12 education in America, often my mind switches off because it's so technical. They go on and on about vouchers and freedom. Simplify it for me. And for our viewers, is this support of vouchers, is it a, a euphemism again for just destroying public education? Yeah, I think so. They dress it up with a lot of technicality and a lot of tax cuts and tax credits and things of this sort. But at the end of the day, what their policies are doing is saying we have, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars that we spend in public schools for any kid who wants to attend. Uh, and we want to take more and more of that money and put it in the private sector and give it to people to attend private schools. And that's kind of where they stop because some people go, well, oh, yeah, that private school up the street, that, that might be a really nice place for my kids. And what they fail to tell us is that none of those private schools are obligated to take any children that they don't want. They can have admission standards. They don't have to meet the needs of students with disability. They can discriminate based upon religion. They can treat LGBTQ children differently. They can even have, to be quite honest, racially hostile environments. Now, there are laws that would prohibit them from excluding African-Americans, but they don't have to be nice to them once they're there. So why would you go to such a school? So there is no protection for any of our disadvantaged children once they leave that public schoolhouse. And that is not part of the narrative they're selling. In fact, they're saying, we're trying to help all these disadvantaged kids. Yeah, good luck is what I say. 
So, as you say, the, the schoolhouse is burning. P public education is being destroyed in America. What are we going to do about it, Darren? Well, you know, I, as I talk about in the book, you know, I'm, I'm really encouraged about the fact that in 2018 and 2019, you saw tens of thousands of, of people, even in the reddest of red states, coming out and marching on their state capitals and making a show of force in support of public education. That the public has become aware of the fact that these folks are trying to, re, to raid, uh, you know, the, the public kitty. And I think a show of force is really the only thing that, that backs them down at all. Um, and to be quite honest, even a show of force doesn't stop them. They continue to press forward. But I think education has to be a far more uh, politically organized issue than it ever has before. I mean, the funny thing about, well, the good thing about education is for most of our history, it has been bipartisan that Republicans, you know, we may have had some different disagreements around those nuances that you turn off and don't want to hear about, but everybody who wanted to support the public schools, right? I mean, you know, George Bush didn't come into office, for instance, by saying, I want to kill the public schools. He said, I want to close the achievement gap. I want to, you know, have test scores. And Teddy Kennedy, you know, co-signed that bill. Now, I don't think No Child Left Behind was a good, a good bill, but it was bipartisan. And now what we have, and so voters never had to think about well, am I voting Democrat or Republican based upon education policy? That was not a place where we're at. But now education is on the ballot, right? We have a Trump administration and, and, and Betsy DeVos that have a, a vision for education that is diametrically uh, opposed to the one that we've had throughout my life and your life and throughout our history. And so when, we, when folks cast a vote this fall, they are making an education vote in a way that they haven't in a long time. The only thing that maybe even comes close is, is Richard Nixon, who wanted to end desegregation, you know, that's 50 years ago. So a vote for Biden is a vote for putting this fire out. But do we need something more substantial also in America, um, Derek, rethinking the, the, the value of teachers and schools? Uh, I, I remember reading a book, I, I can't remember the name of the book, but it was comparing the American education system, particularly with the Finnish one, and the degree of respect and pay that Finnish teachers have reflect on the quality and the value of education in Finland. Now, I know we can't all become like Finland. It's a very different kind of country. But do teachers need to be respected more, public school teachers? Do we need to pay them better? Do we need to uh, revalue the very culture of, of education, in, uh, public education in American life? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it, I think the conversation is so far... Uh, to the right that we, uh, you know, you have to wake me up for a moment and go, oh, wait a minute, where, where's the middle at, Derek? Uh, or where's the left at? Um, you know, it is creating a culture where our teachers are valued, their, their classrooms are not overcrowded. Um, it, it is an environment in where their creativeness is, is, is respected. It's not just someone in Washington, D.C. hammering standardized tests down their throat. Um, so, yes, the teaching profession which there's a big section in the book about that. I mean, there was a, what I call the war on teachers. It was on the front of Time Magazine, the war on teachers that started during the Obama administration. And it totally decimated the pipeline of teachers into public schools. And I'm not going to say that we were in good shape in 2007 or 2008, but we were in a lot better shape than we are now. I mean, literally three years ago, there are schools that cannot find people to hire. I mean, zero people to hire uh, to enter the classroom. They were advertising on billboards in Kansas, you know, literally for, like if you're trying to get truck drivers to stop driving their truck and come teach math, we're in a bad place. And that, I think that's a testament to how poorly 
we've treated our teachers. You know, changing culture is the hardest thing in the world to do. Um, but I think a good start of that is, you know, put your put your money where your mouth is. And so, um, you know, the salaries, the smaller classrooms, uh, the support. You know, the problem is that the other side has demonized teachers and suggested that, you know, any sort of raise or any sort of capitulation to them is just union pandering, right? They've made the teachers the enemy when in fact teachers have fallen further and further behind over the past decade. The rest of us, or many of the rest of us uh, with, with college degrees have seen our wages increase since then, but, but not teachers. Their wages in real dollar terms have been decreasing uh, for over a decade now. So if you wanna know why America perhaps is like post-Soviet Russia, read, um... Derek W. Black's uh, new book, Schoolhouse Burning, really important, well-researched, very convincing book, very sad book in many ways, and also a call to action. Derek, congratulations on the book. What else should people be reading? I know you're in uh, Columbia, South Carolina during this weird fall of 2020. You're probably not going out very much. What else are you reading? Yeah, well, you know, it's it, a lot of folks are reading the, the old stuff. You know, James Baldwin has has stuck with us for a long time. And, and unfortunately, a lot of the truths that he spoke then are still true today and the problems are unresolved. So, you know, the fire next time because is honest now. And so that's a great read. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're looking for uh, fiction, you know, Another Country by James Baldwin as well. But I have been getting out, um, you know, getting out on the trails and, and, and looking around and, and taking the kids out. And, and them experiencing and appreciating nature as they have it before. I actually have it, you know, just here, the, the Lost Art of Reading Nature Signs uh, by Tristan Gooley. It's a wonderful book, you know. It, it's like a whole new universe being open to me as he's teaching me about the way a tree leans or doesn't lean and, the, 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 you know, the, the shape of a pebble or a rock and, and, and field growth. And it's like, well, there's a whole world out there waiting to be discovered. And, and his book is a great guide to that. You've been listening to Keynote hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.